Um, I'm aware we've been doing James for a long time, and um, I do want to finish because I think it's an amazing, amazing discipline just to go through a whole book, and because I think also there's some things that God would continue to speak to us about um, our lives, and I want to speak to you about something this morning that you might not think you, you need help in, and as I was just reflecting on it, I think sometimes as Christians, this is the last place that we think we do need help. But I want to talk about this morning how to handle difficult people in the church. <laughs> how to handle difficult people in the church. And we're going to look at James. And again, it's one of those things. It's like when you talk about suffering, when you talk about hard times, no, nobody actually has a handle really on those, these kind of subjects. I mean, people have been talking about suffering for thousands of years, literally, and still we might understand some things partly well, but we don't, we don't ever get a full understanding of why we have to go through hard times. And um, as I shared this morning, I, I want to lay that as a, a foundation. Even though I'm going to share some things that I think are helpful and are keys for us, I suppose in a real sense we never ever get a complete handle on how to work with difficult people because people are people and people are strange and people are wonderful and people are a mixture of all sorts of things, aren't they? And so I think that we can have some clues here out of the book of James, how to get on, how to ourselves uh, handle difficult situations, particularly with other Christians in the church. And um, I want to call it trusting your cause to God, trusting your cause to God. And so we're going to read from verse 9 of James chapter 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And if you're reading a new uh, NIV, it will say, we consider those blessed who persevered. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. Have you seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful? But above all, my brothers, now he's stressing it again, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you might not fall under condemnation. Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help me this morning. I want to thank you for the power of your words. I want to thank you for the truth of your words. And Lord, our confidence is in you and in your words. Our confidence is in your Holy Spirit working in us. But I just pray, Lord, that this morning you'd help me to communicate well and effectively that you might build this church. And I want to thank you, Lord, that you have been doing an amazing thing in the last number of months in our lives. And so we do rejoice in every good thing that you do. And I ask now that you bring clarity and that hearts would be open, that this might fall in good soil and produce much fruit in our lives. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, uh, perhaps this is a subject that we, we think we might not need instruction in, but I think uh, James certainly thinks we need instruction in this particular area. How do we respond when we are, un we are treated unjustly by other Christians in particular? Uh, I want to say this, and I've been involved in churches now all my life, literally. I was born into a Methodist church, and I saw my dad preach. 
I remember too lying on the floor under the pew playing with my little toys while my dad preached. So I literally have grown up in the church community. And um, I want to say this to you. Sooner or later, some Christian is going to disappoint you. And if you haven't discovered that already, you will discover it in your life. And I don't say that in a, in a condescending way. It's just the reality. People are people. And we all make mistakes. We all mess up. Sometimes we behave badly. We don't understand each other completely. And so particularly in the church community, it can be painful to go through things because in some, in some senses we have, we have an expectation that the church shouldn't be like that because we should be a loving community. And, and I have that expectation all the time that the church is a loving community. The church is God's kingdom, representative of God's kingdom here on earth. But sometimes the pain that we go through in churches can be because of that expectation, that sense of we, we, we want it to be so much more glorious we can go through some deep pain with people when we don't get on with each other. But I, I believe James gives us some really wonderful clues here on how we can learn to handle that better. And I think this is one of the more profound lessons that we have to learn in our lives, is how to get on with each other, and particularly how to get on with difficult people in the church. And so, we've already seen in the beginning of chapter 5 that James said, he says, first thing we have to learn to do is not to strike back not to fight back when we're being treated unjustly. If, if you feel like people are treating you in an immature way, don't respond immaturely back. That's what James says. That's, that's part of the deal. You've got to learn to respond differently, uh, particularly with um, difficult people in the church. And here is the first little key that I think James gives us. In the first verse that we read, he says this, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The first key that you and I need to learn in terms of, of what I, the subject that I'm talking about this morning is we have to learn how not to be bitter people. We've got to find grace for our lives that we don't become bitter. One of the greatest troubles that you and I face in our lives um, is always around personal relationships. It's one thing to be sick. It's one thing to lose possessions. It's another thing to lose a loved one in your life. Those are terrible things that we have to go through. But I think one of the most stressful things in life is getting hold of personal relationships, particularly if a personal friendship, a friendship in a church kind of context, goes sour. Have you ever had one of those kind of relationships in the church where you are getting on in a particular wonderful way with someone and something changes, it just shifts and what was incredibly sweet becomes incredibly sour and bitter and, and full of anxiety. That's a particularly difficult thing to walk through in a church context. And so here in chapter 5, and particularly in James, this, this book of James, we've, we've seen that his main, his main uh, area of concern is that the rich Christians in the church have been treating the poor Christians badly. And the truth is, in this church that he was writing to, the church was full of backslidden, worldly, social climbers that saw the church as a place that they could exert influence. And so they were quite prepared to stand on people to get to the top of this kind of influence in this local church that he was, that he was uh, writing to. And um, the rich guys cared very little about the poor guys. And there must have been an overwhelming temptation for these guys in this church that knew they were being treated unfairly there must have been an overwhelming temptation for them to react, become bitter, and to start holding a grudge against those that were exploiting them. 
in, the, in this local church. And I want to say to you, that's one of the biggest battles that you and I, as Christians, have to learn to overcome. If we are going to walk with Jesus, if we are going to walk by the Spirit, we have to learn how to keep ourselves free and not to become bitter. Particularly over many, many years of being in church community. We've got to learn to forgive quickly. We've got to learn to develop that spirit in our lives that thinks the best of people and forgives quickly. And above all, not to complain. That's how James starts this portion. He says, don't grumble against one another. What I'm really saying to you is that we have to learn to trust our cause to God and say, God, I am completely trusting you that you are going to vindicate this thing in my life, that I am prepared to not say anything. I am prepared to just walk and carry on walking. And like I looked at the last example I looked at with you of the farmer, to let the rain come, the early rain, the latter rain, I'm trusting you that the harvest is going to come up. I'm not going to try and interfere. I'm going to let you complete what you've started. (laughs) And that's a hard thing, isn't it? I'm aware that what I'm saying is not easy. It's a hard thing. And what James is saying here in these couple of verses, he's saying to these guys, God is going to act on your behalf. God is going to intervene. He's confident of that. He's just saying this. He's saying, don't mess it up. And the way that you and I mess it up is that we grumble. We start to get bitter and we start to moan and we start to groan and we start to say, oh, God this and God that. And, and that's how we mess it up. And he's saying, don't mess it up. God is, is, is there. He's, he's waiting to, to uh, break in. Don't mess it up by grieving God, by complaining and getting bitter. It's a hard thing that he's saying, but it's a good thing that he's saying. Learn not to get bitter. And how does he say we do that? Well, he brings us to two examples. And the first he says is this. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take a look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who persevered. And so what he does, the second key he gives us, he says, don't get bitter, but look at the great saints of history. He points us to the, back to the Word. He says, look at the Old Testament. Look at the prophets in particular. And this, for me, is incredibly encouraging because he's saying, what James is saying, is if we can get to this place in our lives where we learn to work with people in a way where we don't get bitter and we don't grumble and we don't complain, we are enrolled in the school of the prophets. He's saying we can know God at the highest level possible. That's what he's really saying. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the prophets are really the heroes of the Old Testament. They are the great heroes of the Old Testament. The the kings really are, most of them are backslidden politicians. (laughs) If you read the book of Judges, you go and read the book of Kings. It's this like up and down cycle of this one loved God and did well, this one rejected God and didn't do well. It's just like this cycle that goes on and on. And most of the guys in the Old Testament that were kings are backslidden politicians. Most of the people that are priests in the Old Testament, they keep the ritual and the tradition of the, of the, the Judaic, Judaic religion going. They, they're traditionalists, they're conformists. They just keep the system going. The great heroes of the Old Testament are the prophets. And they heard God and they walked closely with God. 
And they spoke the word of God to God's people. And you know what they got for their, for their faithfulness? They got persecuted by God's people. That's what they got as thanks. And so what I'm trying to say to you is, is that the Old Testament prophets really are the great heroes, and they learned a lesson that you and I also have to learn. They learned patience. They learned an incredible thing of trusting their lives to God and letting God vindicate them over a period of time. It's an incredible thing. I want to say to you that um, you might not feel that you are qualified as some, to be someone like Jeremiah or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego, any of those great Old Testament people. But if you can get to the place in your life where you can control your tongue and not complain and not get bitter, James is saying that we qualify in the same way. Isn't that an incredibly encouraging thing, that you and I qualify in the same way, that we can know God at that highest level of knowing Him, if we can just get control of this and this. And so there is another test. Now, I think for me, this is one of the greatest tests out of the book of James. And uh, it links back to chapter 3, where James said, talked about the tongue, remember? He's now linking it back to that. He's, he's, he's linking this knowing God at the highest level to our tongues. And he's saying, actually, if you can learn not to speak, but more than that, if you can get a place where in your heart there's not even a hint of a grudge against somebody else, then you are learning to know God at the highest possible level. And so, that doesn't come naturally to you. It doesn't come naturally to me. It's something that we have to learn. And I, I'm convinced that some of the difficult things that we go through in our lives is God's teaching that we can get to this place where we learn not to complain, not to get bitter, not to hold grudges against other people. That we really true, truly get to know Him. And so this is a great test. It's a it's a, it's a very, uh, I want to say for me, it, it's one of those per- tests that's been personal for me. Um, it's particularly hard when someone, when people have hurt your family or people have hurt the church that you love by their indifference or by their, by their um, sense of wanting to get the, uh, their own way in the church. And so they say, many people say they're being biblical. They're not really being biblical. They're... They're just being selfish. They're just trying to get their own way. Prepared to rip and tear the church apart. And when you've seen that, it's a particularly hard thing not to hold a grudge. <laughs> not to hold a grudge. To live free and say, God, I trust you. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus said. James is actually, when you read this portion of James chapter 5, James is actually quoting the Sermon on the Mount a whole lot of times. And if you go and read the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely accuse you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the invitation. Jesus is making the same invitation as he preached that message. He says, you want to know God at a high level, the highest level possible? When people speak evil of you, when pers- people persecute you, even in the church, when they speak wrongly against you, rejoice, because you are in the same school as those great men that have gone before you, the prophets of old, who were also rejected by God's people. It's incredibly encouraging. And so, just to qualify it further, 
James makes a personal judgment that he hasn't done before. He says this, I consider those blessed who remained steadfast, those who persevered, they are blessed. And the word for blessed (laughs) is happy. That's what the word blessed means in the Scripture. When we say bless you, it means be happy. When we say God is a blessed God, it means he's a happy God. And here James is saying, I consider you blessed that have persevered. What he's trying to say, really, the Greek in that verse literally says, Maria, it literally says, be happy. What he's saying is an incredibly difficult thing. He's saying, in a way, he's saying this, I don't really feel sorry for you when you're going through a hard time. That's what James is saying. James is saying, I consider you blessed. I, I, I consider it's happy for you to go through a hard time. Why is he saying that? Because he's just told us why. He's saying, when you go through a hard time as a Christian, anyone who's been used by God anywhere in the Old and New Testament, the great heroes of the faith, have had to go through hard things. And in going through the hard things, they've had to learn this lesson, not to complain, not to get bitter, to trust their cause to God, to say, Jesus, I trust you completely, and to zip their mouths. And he's saying, that's what great men of faith have had to learn. And so if you're going through a process like that, I want to rejoice with you, because God is saying, like he's saying for me, I want to use you and to get you to a place where I can use you in a mighty way. You have to learn that lesson. That's what James is saying. And I, I, I just know in my own life I'm so averse to pain. I don't want to go through pain. I don't want to see my kids go through pain. And uh, isn't it when we see someone saved into the church and they're a new convert, our, our first reaction is, God, we don't want to see them go through pain. We don't, we don't want them to go through a hard time. We want them to, we want them to do well and to go, get off to a, a good start. And so much of our culture and so much of church culture is about blessing and prosperity and just going through life with the sense of utopia. And I just have to say to you, it is absolutely unreal. How many of you have lived a life pain-free? How many of you have lived a life pain-free since you became a Christian? Anyone like to raise their hand? I'm not saying that accuse you. I'm just saying it's absolutely unreal. And I'll tell you why it's unreal now. We're going to look at the greatest, his primary example, his his exhibit A in all of this is Job. And we're going to have a look, just for a brief moment, why he he chooses Job as an example. And Paul, you know, Paul didn't write like that. Colossians 1.24, he says this, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of of his body, that is the church. You might have thought that when Paul was writing to the Colossian church, he would have said, I'm so sorry you guys are going through a hard time. (laughs) He doesn't. He says exactly the opposite. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Philippians 1.29, he says it like this, For it has been granted to you that you might, for the sake of Jesus, you should not only believe in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. Paul puts the two together. It's uncomfortable, but he does. And so it shows really how far we are from these godly men and women that we take. We are so eager to see blessing. We are so eager to see prosperity. And I want to say it's the curse of the modern-day church. 
in particular some brands of Christianity that are preached. If you want to get online, if you want to go to the Gospel Channel, you will find there are dozens of men and women that are prepared to preach that all God has for you is that you get wealthy, all that God has for you is that you feel good about yourself, all that God has for you is that you go through this life just in this pain-free kind of place, and that's actually God's plan for you. I want to say to you, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's not in here. It's a particular brand of American Christianity that appeals to all that is carnal in you and me. It does. It appeals to our carnal nature. And that's why we like it. It's not the gospel. In fact, Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews says that the the mark that you and I are true sons and daughters of God is that we have to go through hard things. It says God treats us as sons. A mark of your sonship, a mark that you are God's son, is that you'll learn to endure difficult things. It's so opposite to the spirit of our age. And so uh, my third point, and I only have three points this morning, so we can enjoy the sun. His primary example... James's primary example is Job. His exhibit A is Job. He says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so he says to these people, you have heard about Job. So this popular phrase was already in use, the patience of Job. Have you ever heard that used before? The patience of Job. And the book of Job was incredibly controversial, and it still is controversial today. And I've already hinted at the reason why the book of Job is controversial today, and why some people just want to dismiss Job and say, it doesn't count at all. And this is the reason that people want to do that. It's because the book of Job preaches a theological message that was right against the rabbinic tradition of the ancient world. It went completely against that tradition, and it goes against the tradition of much of the modern church that preaches the same thing. The ancient rabbinic Judaism taught, in a, their basic belief was that prosperity is a sign of God's blessing. And if, that you had, if you had any sickness in your life, if you had any hardship in your life, it was because you, you were not pleasing God in some way. And so that's what the, the, the Jews taught, and that's what the rabbis taught. And that is what the book of Job radically challenges that message. It challenges it head on. And that's why people don't like it. Because it takes that prosperity thing on and it just obliterates it. And the, prop, the, the popular consensus of, these, of this ancient thought was reflected in Job's friends. Remember his friends come and comfort him? Well, that, their, their views were reflected of the represented the popular theology of the rabbis. And so if you read, if you read the, the book of Job, it's 42 chapters. They come to him at the beginning, and they, they see that he's really taking drain, and they see that he's under pressure, and so they don't speak to him for a, a whole week. They kind of give him a break for a week. But then, <laughs> it's not long after that that they start to moralize. They start to say, Job, you're not really telling us what's going on. Come and tell us the truth. We're here to help you. What's really going on with you? You must have some hidden sin. You must have something in your life that is causing God to allow this in your life. It must be your sin. And he has to endure this kind of language. That's what the majority of the book is. It's about his friends trying to 
persuade him that he's done something wrong. When we read the story of Job, if you read it, I, I just suggest you do this. Read the first three chapters and read the, the last two, because that summarizes the whole story. And you can read all the stuff in between. And you get the whole story in the first three chapters and the last two chapters. When we meet Job, he's on top of the world. He's got it made. He's the head honcho. He is wealthy. He's rich. He's prosperous in every way. And then we are told in verse 8, God (laughs) says to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? (laughs) Right there, it's just a testimony of God's sovereignty. He only allows certain things. The devil can't do anything in your life that God in his sovereign will has not allowed. Let anyone tell you otherwise. God allows testing for Job. And so here the testing starts in the first three chapters. The Sabaeans come, a people group. They steal his oxen and his, his donkeys. They kill his servants. Second thing that happens is lightning falls from heaven. The insurers would, would call it an act of God. There's an act of God. Lightning falls, boof, every sheep that he owns killed, wiped out. Then the Chaldeans come. Remember, Abraham was from uh, the Chaldeans. He was a Chaldean. Uh, these guys come, they steal the rest of his camels, they kill some more of his servants. Another act of God, a strong wind comes up and flattens the house in which his children are having a party and he loses all of his kids, one hit. He loses everything, his family, his wealth, his prosperity, his children. And then that's not all. <laughs> yes, if you read the story, he's afflicted from head to toe in boils. His whole body is covered in boils. He goes through the worst kind of physical pain. And then, to top it all, his friends come. His friends come and they tell him that he's got some secret sin. And that's why he's suffering. So the question is, for you and I, as we're studying James, why does James use Job as his primary example of what he's trying to illustrate? I think there are three, three reasons. One, James He's the suffering of these poor Christians in the church as an extension of what Job was going through. And he's trying to get them to see something profound. Secondly, the reason why James includes it is to show that, that Job's friends were really the, the main thing that he had to handle. Job's friends were the brunt of his trial. This is how Job's response at the beginning, Job 1.21, after he's lost everything, it says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Isn't that incredible? The heart of this man, he's lost everything. And what does he do? He gets on his knees and he worships God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, he says, and naked I will return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with the wrong. You know what it tells me about Job? He's a man who understands the sovereignty of God. He's a man who's at peace with himself. He's a man that trusts God implicitly with everything in the midst of all this pain he's going through. That is an incredible thing. Few people love God like that. And even his wife comes to him. His wife comes to him when he's suffering. He's got boils all over him. She just says, Job, curse God and die. Go read it there. Curse God and die. And in this, in this instant, he is right. He says, you talk like a foolish woman. So he says, and in that one instance, he is right. 
because it, was very, it would be very foolish for him to curse God and to die. So he disagrees with his wife and says, no, I don't agree with you on this one. But the hardest part of all Job's suffering is how he has to handle his friends. And you see, it's, not only, it's, it's, it's only until they come along that Job begins to see into the deepest parts of his own heart and he starts to see some things that are there that he wouldn't have seen, in a sense, if these guys hadn't accused him. And in the end, there was that they brought and they came with their snide remarks and they came with these implications of their statements. And in the end, they just accuse him and say he's got some secret sin. They regard themselves as agents of God coming to put Job right, coming to straighten him out. And he has to sit there and he just has to listen. And the most awful thing is that they have the tradition of the rabbis on their side. And so Job has to listen to all of this stuff, knowing that this is what is taught by the rabbis as well. The third reason that James introduces Job is because he wants us to see that suffering is not just about the loss of possessions and wealth and family, but suffering is also about learning to forgive those that unjustly you. This, is, for me, is the great theme of this book of Job. See, physical pain is one thing. Losing your money is one thing. Losing a loved one is one thing. Going through a divorce is one thing. But he's saying here, there's something that's even more difficult to handle. There's one thing that is more, more difficult than all of those things, is to sit and listen to self-appointed people who come and say that they're going to help God to put us right. <laughs> that's the hardest lesson that you and I have to learn, particularly in the church. And Job has to come to this place, not only to forgive those people, but not even to hold a grudge in his heart. And so this is why James writes, and he uses Job, because he's trying to get these poor Christians in the church to see that yes, they have been exploited. Yes, the rich guys are not treating them well. But he's trying to encourage them to say, don't get bitter in your heart. Look how it worked out with Job. Don't speak. Don't get bitter. Don't hold grudge. Trust your cause to God. I want to encourage you, if you hear anything this morning, that you learn, trust your cause to God, just as I'm trying to learn that as well. And the most encouraging thing I personally take out of Job is this. Job was not perfect. wasn't perfect. When we, when we um, introduced to Job in the, in the first chapter of Job, he's described as an upright man, a perfect man. He was a righteous man. He loved God with all of his heart. But you know, God doesn't expect perfection from you and I. And this is a, the most wonderful thing, as I reflect on his perseverance and how he carried on just trusting God. You know, because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I feel demoralized sometimes when I, I don't get things right. I feel a bit demoralized when I lose my temper or when I say things that I shouldn't. And you know, this is what I find incredibly encouraging about Job, that he got very discouraged during his journey. He was very frail at some time. He even cursed the day of his birth. I mean, that's not a very godly thing to do, is it? To curse the day that you were born and say, God, I wish I hadn't even been born. This is how bad it is. He loses his temper. He loses his temper with his friends. He lost his temper with his wife. And he does demonstrate that in some ways he's as self-righteous as they are. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. But this is what the ordeal did do for Job. 
It made him confront some things about his own life. He started to see some things in his own heart that he didn't even think were there. That's why partly we go through hard times. And it's been amazing to me in the last three years as we've been seeing guys, I just think of Colin, who was trusting God for a job for so many, many months. And I know, because I've prayed with Colin many, many times, that God's done some things in Colin's heart that he would never have done if he hadn't gone through this hard time. And it's not that I'm... I don't know why it is like that. It is like that. God changes you when you're going through a hard time. And I'm sure Colin wouldn't want to go through it again, but I'm not misrepresenting you. I'm sure you. this is true. You know that God has done some things in your life that perhaps you would not have known unless you went through that hard time. And so Job... Well, James points these people and he says, just remember how it turned out with Job. What does he say? God is compassionate and merciful always. And he always comes through in the end. And here for me is the greatest line, the greatest verse in the book of Job. Job 42 verse 10. says this. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, comma, when he had prayed for his friends. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as before. Here is the deep message of Job. Until he got to that place where he could speak blessing over those that had hurt him, he could genuinely pray for them without a hook in his heart, RT thing, total forgiveness. Until Job, Job came to that place of totally forgiving those people that had said to him, there's actually something wrong with you, that's why you're going through this hard time. God's showing his disapproval of you. You would be blessed if you just followed the rules. Until he comes to the place of actually just saying, I can forgive you. And he prays for them from his heart. Then God breaks through when he's come to that place. So Job had to learn a lesson that I, I want to say all of us have to learn in, in, as Christians. With Christians inside the church and with those outside of the church, we have to learn why we are waiting for God to act, why we are trusting God to break through. We have to learn to control our temper, not hit back, even when we know we, we, we be treated unjustly. Learn to pray for others, learn to speak blessing over other people, and to throw ourselves onto the mercy of God and let Him break open things for us. Trusting our cause. God. And lastly, Job concludes this little portion by saying this, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any, or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you might not fall under condemnation. It's like he's stressing this point, saying the most important thing, above all, above everything that I've said to you, is do not swear either by heaven or, or by earth by any other oath. That's how he concludes this um, portion. And what he's trying to say is this, that when there's a church and God is moving, there will, and, and particularly when God is moving in power and things start to happen, there will always be controversy because people see things differently. And for James, the situation was quite particular in that the rich were exploiting the poor and the, clearly, clearly the rich guys were in the wrong. But here he's, he's, teach, he's trying to teach these poorer guys in the church a powerful, powerful lesson. And he's trying to say this. 
Christians that are not backslidden must be careful not to attack those that are. If you know you are right, if you know that what your view is holds to the Scripture and to the Holy Spirit and there's the peace of God and you know that you're right about something, the test for you and the test for me in those situations is not to speak badly of those that are backslidden. That's why it says, above all, don't swear by either heaven or earth. You see, the problem is that we, we, we have in this situation is that we all face an amazing menace. It's called the menace of self-righteousness. It's an incredible menace that we have to learn to not come under in the church. Is that when we know that we are right, it's not to get self-righteous and point fingers at other people that are backslidden. That's what James is saying. And he's saying, when you are in a situation like that, don't use the name of God to try and make your point. That's what he's trying to say. So he's saying, don't go around saying, God's going to judge you. I know that he is, because this is what it says in the Word. I, I swear, I promise you, if you don't repent, God is going to judge you. Even if you know that might be true. He's saying, don't do it. Don't. And keep quiet. Because now you are just becoming a self-righteous person. And that's not going to do you any good. You're going to rob yourself of the blessing that God has for you. God hates all sin, and self-righteousness is a sin that he hates as much as any other. How tragic isn't it that sometimes church communities are the most hateful places? Have you ever thought about that? I was reading a response, I don't know if you know this, but Rick Warren leads a huge church in Los Angeles. 30,000 people. He lost his son last week, and his son committed suicide. 27, year, 27 years old, struggled with depression for most of his adult life, and was being treated and counseled and all this stuff. But um, he took his own life. And I read an article by a lady called Beth Moore, who some of you might know. We've done some of her material here in this church. And she was just talking about how sometimes church communities, instead of, becoming, instead of being the most loving places where people can feel safe, can become the most hateful places where people are just judging each other all the time. Yeah? And in particular, she spoke about leaders of churches. And she, 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 spoke, she said a very interesting thing. She said she's convinced that many church leaders are bullied by their congregations and they say that they are being biblical, but they're not being biblical. All they want is their own way. So they're prepared to bully church leaders and find, over a period of time, just wear them down. And so people's leaders, their, their families suffer, their children suffer unnecessarily because of this constant pressure from other people just to get their own way. And she was just saying, isn't it ironic that what should be the most loving, safe community for all of us can sometimes become the most hateful place if we don't learn to do this thing that James and so I would just encourage you as we go forward as a church, I'm not, saying, I'm not preaching at anyone here. I am just gen genuinely just saying from, from my heart that God is doing such a wonderful thing with us. He is. It's start, you can feel the joy bubbling every week that we um, get together. And uh, God is doing amazing things. There's a sense of worship. People are being saved. We've seen healing. We've seen many, many visitors that have been coming over the last three months. 
this I want to plead with you with all of my heart, that we guard the unity that God is birthing in this place. We guard it. We fight for it. And the way that we fight for it, we don't tolerate anybody. I, I can't even say that because they would be putting stuff on you. But for your own life, don't tolerate from your own tongue any kind of accusation against somebody else. Please don't do it. For those of you that have been in this church for many years, you, can, you have seen what gossip can do. You have seen how community can be destroyed by people being critical of each other. Let's not ever go through that again. Can I appeal to you as friends? No, God is building a good thing here. Let's rejoice in the good things that God is doing. Let's rejoice in salvation. Let's rejoice in healing. Let's zip our tongues. Let's trust our cause to God, even when you feel that I've offended you or that I didn't, I don't know, that you wanted to lead worship and I didn't let you lead worship or something like that. Don't, just, the glory of God, what he's doing is, is, is worth so much. It is so precious. It's so easily lost. Can we, can we agree to do that? I can't force you. All I can say, for the sake of the glory that is before us, for the sake of his presence, for the sake of the good thing that he wants to pour out, Let's not mess it up. Amen? I haven't, I, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I don't know why, but I'm not trying to be serious, all right? But I, I guess it's just my, my nature. I don't know. But all I, <laughs> I'm trying to release us and say, let's, let's guard this thing that God is doing with joy in our hearts. Pray for your enemies especially. Guard your tongue especially. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. God will vindicate you as you trust your cause to him. Whatever your cause is, he will vindicate you. Let him break through in your life, on your behalf. Amen? We're going to break bread together. I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to break bread together. So trust God. All right. Father, I want to thank you for each other. I want to thank you, Lord, for the tender thing that your church is. I want to thank you, Lord, that you respond to humility and uh, joy. You respond to kindness and mercy. You respond to humility. And so, God, I want to pray above all for us as a church community that you would help us, each and every one of us in our lives, put to death those things that displease you. Uh, Lord, that we would truly learn to trust our cause to you whatever that cause might be, and where we felt like we might have been uh, mistreated by others, whether in the church or outside of the church. We just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be those that live by the Spirit, that walk by the Spirit, that truly don't hold grudges, that truly don't give in to, in the quiet place of our heart, holding something against another person, even when that person has hurt us deeply. We want to trust you to that God. I pray, Lord, that this community would increasingly become a merciful, graceful, compassionate place. That people truly that are broken will find a home here. That they would not find condemnation. They would find mercy. That every 
place of legalism in our lives, Father, that you would do away with it, that we would not point the finger at anyone, not for anything, that you'd help us to get on with each other, that you can build a glorious, glorious community that speaks of your kingdom, speaks of your goodness, speaks of your mercy and your truth and your grace. And Lord, we just say we can't do that without you. We can only do that with your Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would empower us in the most amazing way to live like that. It's impossible apart from you.